What you're about to hear was aired on Planet Philadelphia, environmental radio show on Germantown Community Radio, 92.9 FM, WGGTLP in Philadelphia, and on gtownradio.com. Hi, everyone. This is Planet Philadelphia. I'm Kay Wood, the host of the show, and I'm going to be speaking with Leonard Nakamura today, and we'll be talking about the importance of measurement in dealing with climate change. Thank you so much for talking with me. It's so nice to see you again. Oh, it's great to be here. Really always enjoy talking with you. Could you introduce yourself a bit? Okay. Um, My name is Leonard Nakamura. I'm an emeritus economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, which means they no longer pay me, but I do keep an office there and I get to talk to those smart folks. And as part of that, I'm also uh, participating in federal efforts to measure natural capital and the costs of climate hazards. These are a part of a long-run effort that the Biden administration has been pushing to enable us to understand our economic impacts on the climate and the climate's economic impact on us. Um, And these understandings are very important so that we know when we're making progress and when we're not making progress. One other thing about me is that I'm uh, part of a small education group called the uh, Climate Net Zero Education Project here in Philadelphia. In your uh, introduction there, you alluded to my first question, which is the importance of measurement and, and trying to measure things as accurately as possible. Could you talk about that? Sure. So one thing that is sometimes said is that what isn't measured does not get managed. And the idea behind that saying is that if you can't measure uh, something, then you don't know whether you're making progress on it or not. So for example, it's only really fairly recently that we've tried to make fairly good estimates of our carbon dioxide emissions into the atmosphere. Uh, And now we know fairly well how much destruction we're doing to the atmosphere, and we're able to place the amount of carbon dioxide in the air into historical contexts about you know, what happened in previous eras when we had similar levels of carbon dioxide. Similarly, uh, we still do not have very good measures of methane emissions. I mean, methane is a very important greenhouse gas, and and one of our highest priorities is eliminating uh, methane emissions. But if we don't know where it's all coming from, it's very difficult to manage. Similarly, we try to measure a lot of things in dollars because dollars are very concrete to people. And when we pass legislation, for example, 
uh, it's frequently required that there be an analysis of the legislation and how it's going to impact our economy. Is it going to make our economy larger or smaller? And what gets passed and how it's viewed by the public is often very much determined by what we think the costs and benefits of it are in dollars. One of the things that we'd like to do is be able to quantify negative impacts on the environment. Because if a coal mine is feeding a coal-fired utility, then that chain leads to a lot of carbon dioxide. And we know that putting that carbon dioxide into the atmosphere is a bad idea. But how bad? The electric utility wants to say, well, it's not too bad. And, you know, we're still profitable for us to pump out this electricity despite the carbon dioxide. But if you can quantify the cost of that carbon dioxide, you know, what it's going to cost us in the future to remove that carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, for example, then we can get a better idea of whether that coal fuel utility is really making us better off or making us worse off. There's the carbon dioxide that is doing global warming, but are they taking into account all the other things, mercury and other things that are being put into the atmosphere, how that might affect people's health? It seems to me that no, those... there are are a number of variables that could be in that measurement. That's right. Uh, when we're doing these efforts to uh, measure hazards and environmental impacts, we don't just measure carbon dioxide. We measure things like fine particulates. So we know that people who live near coal utilities are going to have shorter lives than people who live far away from them. And, you know, that's a, another clear cost that we would like to monetize so we can say these plants are only a good deal for the utility. They're not a good deal for the nation as a whole because of its negative effects on people who live nearby. Talking about costs, I can't imagine what would it cost to ameliorate climate change? We don't know, but one way of getting at that is to ask, what does it cost to take carbon dioxide permanently out of the atmosphere, right? So the problem is, is that when you burn fossil fuels, there's been carbon that's been stored in the earth maybe for hundreds of millions of years. And now in a relatively short period of time, uh, mainly in the last 50, 60 years, we've taken a tremendous amount of these fossil fuels and thrown them into the atmosphere. We can bring that back in, for example, we can plant a tree and the tree can absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and then when the tree dies or gets chopped down, if the way that that's chopped down and used doesn't 
throw any more carbon dioxide back into the atmosphere, then the cost of that whole process of getting the carbon dioxide into the wood and using the wood, that's one measure of the cost of getting carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. But it's very hard to make sure that that wood is going to stay there permanently, not going to at some point rot and return the carbon dioxide to the atmosphere. So our estimates of what the cost of carbon removal is are north of $100 a metric ton. That translates into something on the order of a dollar per gallon of gas. So we can see that since there are lots and lots of gas that we burn every year, we're talking huge amounts of money, but not impossible amounts of money. Um, another way of thinking about this is to ask, well, what is climate change already costing us? And the answer is, for the United States, a, a kind of minimum answer is about $150 billion a year. That's what Americans lose to climate weather disasters like uh, storms, hurricanes, frosts, floods, um, wildfires. That's an awfully large number, but that seems like the cost would actually be much higher because that's just disasters. I mean, there's things that happen every day. Right. So that's just one piece of that. That piece does not, for example, speak to the pollution costs of wildfires. It's just when that number is about wildfires, it's about the houses that get lost and the amount of timber that's lost. In that small way, it doesn't capture nearly everything. And you're right that there are also lots of other expenditures, like the fact that we spend more on air conditioning than we used to, um, or that people you know, are more likely to die from heat stroke. So yes, but that's exactly right. That's uh, kind of a minimum estimate. This is trying to do a cost-benefit analysis? I'm glad you brought that up because um, this past year, the Biden administration updated uh, cost-benefit analysis. And cost-benefit analysis is something that's done in order to justify regulatory measures. So if we say we want people to wear seatbelts, for example, we have to ask the question, well, how much do seatbelts cost? And then we ask to, have to ask as a benefit if people use the seatbelts, what do we expect to happen in the way of fewer lost lives and fewer injuries and uh, fewer hospitalizations? And we can justify a regulation if those benefits are larger than the costs. Now, in some ways, it seems like cost-benefit analysis is straightforward, but again, it depends on what you include in the cost side and what you include in the benefit side, how you count everything. 
one of the really good things about measuring the climate and our climate contributions more accurately is that those can then maybe put into cost-benefit type analyses. Another issue is climate justice, and that's the issue of who gets harmed most by a given climate difficulty. For example, air pollution tends to hurt low and moderate income populations more than rich ones because those low and moderate income populations are more likely to be near power plants that are spewing pollution. On the other hand, you know, some things affect uh, rich people more than poor people. So a lot of the people in Florida who were impacted by hurricanes have been, uh, some of them have been quite wealthy people. Now, what difference does it make in terms of the numbers if you're talking about wealthy people or poor people? Well, the standard way of looking at this is that wealthy people count more than poor people because wealthy people's houses are worth more than poor people's houses, for example. So if you have a hurricane that goes through a fancy resort like Sanibel Island, that winds up looking like a big cost. But a flood, let's say, that goes through a poor section of um, New York doesn't count as much. But is that really the right way to do a cost-benefit analysis? And one of the great things that the Biden administration did in the recent uh, revamp of cost-benefit analysis is to say, well, you could take distributional factors into effect in the following way, that a dollar to a poor person means more than a dollar to a rich person. Uh, this is something that economists call diminishing marginal utility. And what it's all about is the fact that if you're very poor, $5 might mean the difference between being able to eat or not on a given day. While if you're very rich, you know, $5 has, has almost no meaning. So in that sense, it might it's sensible to say that saving a dollar of a rich person is not as valuable as saving a dollar as of a poor person. And the way the Biden administration wrote the cost-benefit analysis, which, by the way, is in line with the latest economic thinking about these things, um, says that you can evaluate these things differently, that you should take into consideration what that dollar is as a percent of the income of the person who's being affected. That's approximately what the formula says. So a 5% drop in income to a poor person should be evaluated as being equivalent to a 5% drop of the income of a rich person. I see. So that's what's happening now. What happens about figuring out what happens to future generations? Because what we do now is affecting future generations. Exactly. Um, and one of the big questions there is what they call 
the discount factor. Normally, the economy is expected to grow in that we expect over time to have more income per person. So we'll all be better off in the future. That means that relative to the future, people in the present are poorer than people in the future. So if that's true, then you know a dollar today might mean the equivalent of $2 20 years from now. But the question is, is the next generation really going to be better off than the current generation? And how much better off? So economists argue that growth has been slowing down and that if you count in the effects of climate change, uh, maybe the future doesn't look so bright. So one of the things the Biden administration has done is try to tamp down the discount rate in the sense that you might say that a dollar today is you know only worth a dollar twenty five in the future. And so that means that we need to pay more attention to our impacts on future generations than our standard cost-benefit analysis does. It's possible that if we don't get climate change under control, that future generations might be worse off than they are today. In that case, we ought to be you know, willing to sacrifice a dollar today, even if it only saves 50 cents for the future generation. You know, and I think a, a lot of listeners to Planet Philadelphia may be thinking that we need to do stuff to reduce carbon dioxide for exactly these reasons, that our children and our children's children may not be better off than we are. There's the economy, but there's also natural capital. I've heard those terms, and I was wondering if you'd care to talk about that. Okay. Natural capital is not an easy thing to wrap your mind around. And in fact, the economics profession has had a tough time wrapping its head around this. But the basic idea is that, you know, nature does not transact with us, right? Transactions are, for the most part, between human beings or between institutions acting on behalf of human beings, uh, like corporations or governments or NGOs. And that means that, you know, nature doesn't get to charge us when we're making nature worse off. But nature provides a lot of services to us in the same way that other forms of capital do. I mean, land obviously provides a lot of services. Air provides a lot of services to us. Um, water provides a lot of services to us. In fact, the value of those services are really, when you think about them, they're infinite. If we didn't have those services, if we didn't have uh, land, air, and water, we wouldn't exist. So when we talk about natural capital, one of the problems that we have is that the value of nature 
is kind of infinite. But in terms of our transactions with nature, those are finite. So the amount of carbon dioxide we stick into the atmosphere or the amount of oxygen that gets absorbed by us and recycled through carbon dioxide by plants, all the surfaces themselves are finite. And we can look at that part of nature and say, okay, it's providing these services and we're using nature in these ways. And we can just focus on that stuff and try to put a value on that. That's how economists have come to think about natural capital. And what we're trying to do is measure the services of nature and then translate that into wealth terms. We've covered a lot of ground here. Have we missed something you think people should know? This is sort of something that I've been thinking about lately, which is that people in the wake of artificial intelligence have raised the question of what is the place of humanity in the universe or in on earth and we're used to thinking well you know we run things cuz we're the smartest but with artificial intelligence maybe there's something else out there that might be smarter but also we're at the same time we've been learning a lot about the intelligence of other animals Dolphins, we've known about for a long time, but octopuses and um, so forth. One of the things about the economy and the nature of the economy is that it's very human oriented, right? It's only humans or institutions on behalf of humans who participate in the economy. And people are starting to challenge that. And, you know, so there have been suits on behalf of nature, and there have been efforts to sort of make natural objects like rivers so that they can have interests of their own. And there are efforts to provide future generations who also are unable to transact agents in thinking about the economy. The great science fiction novel about climate, the ministry of the future, is about a ministry that gets established to represent the interests of future generations. So I think one of the things that we want to be thinking about the economy is that it does have this kind of fundamental flaw built into it that we need to think about whenever we're thinking about uh, our economic activities. And, you know, these efforts by the federal government and indeed by governments around the world to take better account of nature and natural capital are one small part of a effort to think more considerately about our fellow natural beings. Well, thank you so much.
Okay. If you want to know more about Planet Philadelphia, go to planetphiladelphia.com. You could also find out more about other G-Town Radio programming by going to gtownradio.com. I hope you will consider making a small monthly donation to help Planet Philadelphia continue presenting interviews on important underreported environmental topics and exploring their complexities and intersections. Thank you so much for your support. Mm-hmm.